DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Dr. Lillis is also the author of Hidden Mountain Secret Garden, a Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we reflect on the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Her retreat, entitled The Last Retreat, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be with you and to be with your audience once again. It's an incredible gift that was left for us by Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. As you've shared with us, it was written in quite literally her last days. Very much so. She meant this to be kind of a an encouragement to the sisters who had been taking care of her. They knew that she was close to the Lord, and they knew that she had a wisdom to help them with their life as contemplative Carmelites. And so they asked her, even under the limits of excruciating physical suffering, to try to commit what the Lord was communicating to her in her heart for them in writing so that they could benefit from it. So you have here a work of real love written under very difficult circumstances. She continues on the sixth day with a reflection from the book of Revelation. Yes, and on the fifth day I mentioned how important the image of the Lamb was, and that image comes up again in the first paragraph for the sixth day. And I saw, and behold, the Lamb was standing upon Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice, like a voice of many waters, and like a voice of loud thunder, and the voice that I heard was as of several harpers playing on their harps. And they were singing as it were a new song before the throne. And no one could learn the song except those hundred and forty-four thousand, for they were virgins. These follow the Lamb wherever he goes. There are some who even here below belong to this generation pure as the light. They already bear on their foreheads the name of the Lamb and of his Father. The name of the Lamb, by their resemblance and conformity with him, whom St. John calls the faithful and true, and whom he shows us clothed in a robe stained with blood. These also are the faithful and true, and their robe is stained with the blood of their constant sacrifice. 
the name of his father because he radiates in them the beauty of his perfections. All his divine attributes are reflected in these souls and they are like so many strings which vibrate and sing the new song. They also follow the lamb wherever he goes, not only on the highways that are broad and easy to travel, but down the thorny paths along the brambly ways. That is why these souls are virgins, that is, free, set apart, stripped, free from all save their love, set apart from everything, especially themselves, stripped of all things both in the supernatural order as well as in the natural order. This image then, which she's doing a reflection on this throng that is gathered around the throne of the Lamb. She doesn't reflect on this, but the significance of the number 144,000, there's some people who want to interpret it, boy, you know, if I'm headed to heaven and I'm 144,001, I guess I don't make it, you know. Well, that's a weird kind of fundamentalist kind of interpretation that the church just doesn't accept. These numbers are symbolic, and so 144,000, the number 12 notes the fullness of Israel, the people of God. And so 12 times 12 is 144, and so 12 times 12, the most Israel of Israel, the great mystery of Israel, it's speaking about the fullness of the mystery of Israel times a thousand. In the book of Revelations, this throng then is pointing to a numeric fullness of God's people being realized around the throne of the Lamb, and they are pure. Their hearts are pure. Remember what Jesus says, blessed are the pure of heart, they shall see God. The author of the book of Revelations is saying, this saying of Jesus is realized. Those who are pure, those who are virginal, they are the ones who see God and they know how to praise him. And in a special way, Elizabeth is applying this to contemplative religious, to, to religious sisters. And it's their privilege and their vocation to know how to praise God in very intimate and personal ways. The rest of the church doesn't know in the same way. And I, I'm not talking about you know how to exterior kinds of things, but interior movements of the heart to be completely surrendered. The whole contemplative vocation is about that. But of course, to all of us, what they learn in Carmel or in the Benedictines or in the Poor Clares, where these very, very intimate movements of heart are made in the secret hiddenness of their lives, hidden from the world. By way of analogy, we make these same movements in, in our lives too. So the, the role of the contemplative of the, of the church is to point us to this heavenly music, to point us to our, our ultimate end, to teach us songs that they sing in heaven, but here on earth through the hiddenness of faith. This mystery that contemplative lives is what Elizabeth is kind of pointing to when she goes on to explain what the name of the Lamb means, what the name of the Father means, what it means to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And so uh, the name of the Lamb comes first. 
There are some who even here below belong to this generation pure as the light. They already bear on their foreheads the name of the Lamb and of his Father. The name of the Lamb by their resemblance and conformity with him whom St. John calls the faithful and true. And so to bear the name of Jesus means to be like him who is faithful and true. Well, how do we become like Jesus who is faithful and true? And Elizabeth of the Trinity is saying, well, one of the ways you do this is through mental prayer, through contemplation, by thinking about him, by thinking about the sacrifice that he made for us. And as you think about that sacrifice, it forms your heart so that you can make the same offering. In fact, as you think about that sacrifice, Jesus is actually communicating the power you need so he's the one who's transforming you to be like him. And so prayer opens us up to the sacrifice of Jesus, live, realizing it. And so that's the name of the Lamb. And then he talks about the name of his Father. Just as they received the blood of Jesus to make a, them more like Jesus, they also have the name of the Father because he radiates in them the beauty of his perfections. The perfections of the Father are radiant, they attract us, they captivate us. And what are these perfections? The, the divine attributes. So what are those attributes? Justice and mercy and truth and goodness and wisdom. All these things that belong to the Father. The name of his Father, because he radiates in them the beauty of his perfections. All his divine attributes are reflected in these souls, and they are like so many strings which vibrate and sing the new song. These attributes are being communicated to them in their souls. Catherine of Siena loved this very idea. For St. Catherine, she says that some souls, God gives them a greater share of certain kinds of attributes for the building up the body of Christ. So there's some souls who are particularly gifted with the gift of justice, and the gift of justice is about the art of getting along with each other. So they help the church realize how to get along with each other in better ways. And there are other souls that are particularly gifted with works of mercy, and so they help lead the whole church into taking care of those who most need to be taken care of. And there, there are other souls who are gifted with truth, and so they build up the body of Christ by being good teachers. Well, Elizabeth is kind of playing with the same idea here. The attributes, the perfections of the fathers are, are being communicated to contemplative souls to help draw the whole church into prayer. And that, so that's what the name of the Father is about. And then, and then as they take on these perfect, that's how they know this new song. A song is an expression of jubilation, something that explodes from the depths of our being, something that we need to raise to God in response to what he's revealed to us. As we see the perfection, the glory, the goodness, the beauty of the Father, we want to sing. And so to learn to sing, to praise God, um, it's not like an exterior act that we make and we get better and better at. 
to praise God is an act of the interior of our soul seeing his goodness and wanting to respond to it with the fullness of our being. And so, so music here is a very important image for Blessed Elizabeth. She was a pianist. And as a, a pianist, she knew what it was to, when you first are playing and you're learning the notes in, of a given piece, you kind of play it mechanically on the exterior. But to really play a piece of music the way it's supposed to be played, you need to play it with your heart. Your whole being needs to be in the music. And she said when she, a teenager, they asked her how she was able to play with so many people watching. She said, I would just turn my thoughts to God and play for him. And it was like the people weren't there anymore and the music was just for God. And So this, when she's talking about the new song here in this passage, she's talking about lifting our whole being up in praise to the Father, responding to who he is and his love for us. The, the final part she reflects on, And they are like so many strings which vibrate and sing the new song. They also follow the Lamb wherever he goes, not only on the highways that are broad and easy to travel, but down the thorny paths along the brambly ways. That is why these souls are virgins, that is, free, set apart, stripped, free from all save their love, set apart from everything, especially themselves, stripped of all things both in the supernatural order as well as in the natural order. They also follow the Lamb wherever he goes, and so they're not attached to wanting to go this way when God wants to go that way. Instead, they're free, they're set apart, they're stripped, free from all, save their love. In order to strip us, in order to free us, God sometimes allows us to experience extreme external trials. Uh, physically, uh, psychologically, he allows us to go into very difficult places. Sometimes we get into those places and we wonder whether or not God loves us, whether or not he's abandoned us. And the message of Blessed Elizabeth here is, of course he hasn't abandoned you. Quite the opposite. He's trying to free you right now through this trial so that you will be completely free to follow him wherever he goes. There won't be anything impeding you from following his perfect will. It's a painful thing to have to go through such purifications, but the souls that will go through those purifications with trust, they'll discover this kind of childlike freedom to love and trust God in all things. And that is so worth it. God will even permit us to, to suffer very difficult things so that that kind of inner freedom can be accomplished in us. She goes on in this particular reflection about how going on beyond ourselves can be almost like a death. Yeah. What a going out from self that implies. What a death. Let us say with St. Paul, Quotidie morior, 
the great saint wrote to the Colossians, You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is the condition. We must be dead. Without that, we may be hidden in God at certain moments, but we do not live habitually in this divine being because all our emotions, self-seeking and the rest, come to draw us out of Him. The soul that gazes steadfastly on its master with this single eye which fills the whole body with light is kept from the depths of iniquity within it of which the prophet complains. The Lord has brought it into the spacious place which is nothing else than Himself, where everything is pure, everything is holy. O blessed death in God, O sweet and gentle loss of self in the beloved being which permits the creature to cry out, I live, no longer I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in this body of death, I live in the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is a very, very difficult mystery to allow the life of Christ to animate us, to become our heartbeat in all our relationships. There's a, a total death to self that must occur. And letting go of our whims and letting go of the way we want things to go and we expect things to go, what our agendas are, and to surrender all of those and abandon all of those to the Father and to trust Him. This is what she means by, by dying to ourselves. And as I, I mentioned in our last reflection, in order to bring us to that point, because we don't usually go there very willingly, He allows us to suffer a lot of different difficult trials. And the temptation, as I said before, is always to think that somehow God has abandoned us in those trials. And it feels like he has. But in fact, the trials are there so that we will do exactly what Jesus said we need to do if we're going to be his disciples. And that is, if we're going to be his disciples, we need to deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow our crucified master. When we do that, we become a source of life for the whole world, for all those we love. Blessed Elizabeth, in fact, saw her great spiritual mission to help lead souls out of themselves and into the place where really they could die to their own whims and kind of emotional needs, be completely surrendered to what God wants to do in each moment of their lives. This way, dead to themselves and alive in God, they can fill each moment with love. Galatians 2.20 about how that, that we witnessed to essentially... A crucified Christ. Mm. The fact that we have to truly, truly believe that first and foremost, so that then it makes sense. This, it's not I who live, but now He lives in me. Mm -hmm. 
and that's a tenet of faith that do we really believe that? Because it was enough that Paul believed it, that he was willing to lay down his life for that impossibility mm. of a crucified and yet resurrected Christ within me. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason why he's professing this, he really encountered the Lord. For him, there was no doubt. He met the Lord on the way to Damascus, and it totally changed everything about him. It wasn't just something external to him that he intellectually extended to. It was a new principle of life that he received. So when he says those words, living by faith in the Son of God who died for our sakes, he's talking about a living reality that he has in him now. And that's exactly what Elizabeth is tied into. And she's so connected to him. She has such a great love, I think. And we have to recall how much Paul means to her. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. What's remarkable, again, she didn't even have the Bible, and she totally connects with this experience of St. Paul. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. It really is. Any final thoughts on this particular day? It's probably the most difficult doctrine of all. We hear it, and we want to pull back from it. In our own prayer, we maybe will spend years you know, kind of trying to figure out with God how you can have it both ways. You know, we die a little bit to ourselves, but but not all the way. So we still have one foot in one camp and one foot in the other camp. Elizabeth of the Trinity never really lived like that. Teresa of Avila did. And she said she spent, you know, really the first 30 years of her prayer life trying to do just that. And she said it was so exhausting. What we hear from so many of the saints who make the decision to completely die to themselves and to live for God is that once they made the move, it was completely worth it. That dissipating themselves, trying to have it both ways, does not work. And yet we tell ourselves that it can, that somehow we we are uh, self-reliant enough and self-sufficient enough that somehow we can pull this thing off that no other great saint could ever pull off. Blessed Elizabeth in this passage is inviting us to trust God, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, and to put our lives in his hand. And when we do that, she's telling us there is a fullness of life that is yours. What a going out from self that implies. What a death. Let us say with St. Paul, Quotidie morior. The great saint wrote to the Colossians, You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is the condition. We must be dead. Without that, we may be hidden in God at certain moments, but we do not live habitually in this divine being because all our emotions, self-seeking and the rest, come to draw us out of Him. The soul that gazes steadfastly on its master with this single eye which fills the whole body with light is kept from the depths of iniquity within it of which the prophet complains. The Lord has brought it into the spacious place, which is nothing else than Himself, where everything is pure, everything is holy. 
O blessed death in God, O sweet and gentle loss of self in the beloved being which permits the creature to cry out, I live, no longer I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in this body of death, I live in the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.